this is J.D. Tulosic, and welcome. This podcast is sponsored by Cultural Programs of the National Academy of Sciences. Thanks for joining this podcast featuring highlights from our inaugural D.C. Art and Science Evening Rendezvous, or DAZER as we like to call it. Art and science are both creative disciplines, more alike than we often think of them as being. Our DAZER programs are monthly salons that bring together experts from an array of fields to explore the nexus of art and science, where different perspectives can influence each other and drive innovative thinking. DAZER is a collaboration between the cultural programs of the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, D.C., and Leonardo, the International Society for Art, Science, and Technology. During our first program, held at the Keck Center here in Washington, D.C. on February 16, 2011, we heard from our four guests, a group that included artists, scientists, and administrators who were implementing cross-disciplinary projects. The discussion focused on the ways science and art work together to express ideals, foster innovation, and streamline problem solving. While the benefits of such collaborations are clear to those who take part in them, gaining acceptance and funding for such endeavors isn't always easy. Our guests provided some insight into where the difficulties lie and some strategies to get past them. Lee Boot is a multimedia artist and he's the Associate Director at the Imaging Research Center at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. In 2004, Lee made a film funded by the National Institutes of Health called Euphoria, where he explored the issues of addiction from both a cultural and biological perspective. His creative exploration made use of two approaches not commonly found in scientific literature, metaphor and ambiguity. Both of these ways of thinking can illustrate phenomena in a way that captures the imagination. Lee talked about a clip from his film as an example. In this segment, he offers a unique way of imagining a network of neurons. Here we're talking about the way a single neuron fires, and we decided to do it underwater, combining underwater synchronized swimming and images of neurons. And we had a wonderful piece of music composed for this, which I won't turn up right now, but trying to create an almost operatic experience around the incredible uh, dance that is a single neuron firing. I'm sure many of you are familiar with what happens with that. In all of Lee's work, he attempts to find ways of connecting science with the larger culture. The goal of my work is to try to find particular bits of science, knowledge, that I think have some grip, have some traction with our culture. And if you're into fiction, you know, you know that a story needs conflict. And for me, the conflict when it comes to looking at science knowledge is often between the knowledge and the sort of common prevailing wisdom of the time. So I'm constantly sort of combing science to find where is there a story? Where is there some interesting conflict between what science is now telling us about this or that and the way we all kind of proceed on a day-to-day level? What's the socially normative thought versus what's the science? Carol Christian, a scientist at the Space Telescope Science Institute, points to a place where she sees science and culture coming together in a distant corner of the solar system. Oh, poor Pluto! Little 
friend, poor little planet, abandoned, killed, removed from the solar system. <laughs> if anybody has uh, watched Neil deGrasse Tyson on, on television and his, his interviews with Jon Stewart and whatever, you know, he got hate mail, the third grader sent him, <laughs> sent him nasty letters. This is really a cultural icon. Everybody's still upset about it. What do you mean it's a dwarf planet? So this astronomy thing actually runs deep. Indeed, looking at the skies has been part of human culture since ancient times. Many cultures left behind art that shows their attempts to understand the heavens. While displaying vibrant, awe-inspiring images taken by a space telescope, Carol describes how modern astronomers still rely on artists to bring data to life. Because we can't touch our objects, we have to be very clever about how we gather information about the universe that we're trying to study. And we also need artists' conceptions to visualize what we're seeing, which is a two-dimensional view. We have to make an artist's conception to understand the three-dimensional universe. And sometimes artists call in astronomers to help them better understand art. Carol says, for example, that by interpreting what they could see in some particular Ansel Adams photos, astronomers have been able to discern the exact date and time when those photos were shot. This has helped photographers and photo historians understand what Adams had in mind. But when an artist is collaborating with a scientist, agreeing on how to express an ideal or even understanding what the other is saying can be tricky. Tom Scalick, Vice President for Research and a Professor of Biomedical Engineering at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, has thought a lot about how practitioners from different disciplines might describe the same thing in different ways. He pulls out an origami ball to illustrate his point. This is a piece of paper, but as you may be able to see, it's also a work of origami. Uh, and so I can also manipulate this work of origami. I can also take different perspectives of it, the, illustrating the need to be willing to see other points of view by observing that as a mathematician I might say by adding more and more and more sides to this you know it's only folded so many times here I can make it more like a ball or a sphere on the other hand I could say no that's not the perspective that's correct because the more I fold it the more angles and sides I'm adding to it thus the farther it is from being a sphere or a ball so you know how you see this transformation really depends on your perspective quite strongly. Tom points out that many institutions are resistant to bringing these different perspectives together to work on a problem. It's just not the way things are usually done, and that makes the prospect of this kind of collaboration even more exciting. I like to think about the problem of creativity in the institution as a cultural problem, which of course are the most difficult problems, but also the most exciting ones to address, because when there's culture change, truly disruptive things can really happen. And this act of disruption, that is to say new ways of thinking that have the potential to change the way we approach an ideal, relies on people from different disciplines acknowledging that they have lots to learn from each other. It's okay to have humility to continue learning from others. It's also okay to share ideas freely because you'll probably have another idea soon afterwards. And this is a little bit antithetical to how we educate today and how many professionals in large organizations interact. So to me, the answer is creativity in institutions about setting culture where it's okay to have collaborations that stimulate associative thinking at intersections between fields and make that as frequent as possible, make it recognized, make it celebrated, 
you know, celebrate failure, the old cliche now, I guess, you know, fail fast and celebrate it. Because if you're not seeing that in your culture, it's unlikely that you're at a frontier. And according to Guna Nadarajan, we need to be at these frontiers to address the global questions of today's world. Guna is a vice provost for research at the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore. What we are facing today is a complex world with complex problems and it needs complex solutions. And complex solutions don't come with individuals who are trained in a particular discipline, in a particular area. We need people to work together, like Tom was talking about, you know, this, this whole idea of collaboration. Laying the groundwork for collaboration can be as simple as introducing two people and getting them to talk to each other. But to become institutionalized, Guna says the process needs stewardship. Sometimes it takes physically putting an artist into a science lab and letting them have it the problem. Guna describes how bringing artists into a nanoscale modeling lab changed an ugly duckling of a project into a swan. After I moved to the U.S. in 2006, a professor of chemistry approached my office and said, look, you know, you are developing research at the art college and would you be interested in just coming to see what we are doing in nanotechnology? I said, of course. So he basically was working with catalytic nanomotors. These were nanoparticles that actually had if you, if you immerse them in hydrogen peroxide, they, by catalytic action, they start moving. And under the uh, electron microscope, they actually look like they are, they are living things. They look like they have independent motion. So he said, look, you know, we are working on this, and primarily our problem is drug delivery. How do we create much more targeted drug delivery systems using catalytic nanomotors? And they basically approached us because they had some money. And they said, look, would you be interested in getting some artists involved in this? And we did. We actually had two sound artists and some interactive media artists working with them. And basically, they framed the question so differently. They started looking at not individual particles, but they looked at the entire thing as a swarm. Can we think about these things as uh, not as individual units, but as part of a swarm, and think about flocking behavior? use that as a model to think about how each individual unit does not need to have full awareness of everything that is going on, but only some simple rules. So it was a game changer. And they suddenly started thinking very differently about their own research project. And they started off just simply thinking about us doing some workshops and some nice things for kids who will come and visit their lab. Guna points out that one obstacle both scientists and artists face when wanting to work together is that it can be difficult for funders to label a collaborative project as belonging to one category or other for funding purposes. In other words, established categories don't encompass the complexity of the work. But there's hope that this might improve in the future. He points out that individuals from the National Science Foundation and from the National Endowment for the Arts recently brought a cross-disciplinary group together to discuss funding these collaborative projects science and art funding agencies coming together and talking about the fact that we need to develop funding schemes, funding programs, structures, and evaluation criteria that will allow us to open up this potential to innovative ideas that are not held down by restrictions or ideas that are coming from just one discipline. I think that is the most exciting thing that has happened, at least for me, in the last one, one year, you know, that really represents, I think, institutionally an open round 
for many more people to be involved. And I, I hope we will have more departments from the NSF and more departments from the NIH that will actually embrace the idea. Thanks for joining us for this podcast, the DC Art and Science Evening Rendezvous. Dazer is a monthly community-centered salon organized by the cultural programs of the National Academy of Sciences and by Leonardo. For more information on Dazers and other events and exhibitions, visit us on the web at www.cpnas.org. My name is J.D. Tulosik. <laughs>